Uh, we're just going to jump right in. We're going to jump right in with this story in Acts. But before we get there, um, I want to share a story with you guys about my week. Um, it's been sort of an odd holy week for me. I think last year, um, everyone, this whole COVID thing was still sort of fresh, and so everyone was really happy and like, oh, we're just going to do something online. It's great. Um, and I remember actually on Monday Thursday, which is one of my favorite nights of Holy Week, the night of the Last Supper, uh, I led an online Zoom service, and it was good, and it was fine, but I just remember just sort of thinking, ah, online's just not the same. And I felt like I was missing out on something. And then um, we finished the service, I remember about 7.45, and I had, I was really excited because then I was like, I had time to go put my son to sleep. And so I went after the service and went and put my son to sleep, and we um, were reading through the Easter stories in his children's Bible. And so we have the Last Supper, right? And that was kind of fun and kind of nice, and he liked that. And then um, Friday night, we did Good Friday. And uh, something you need to know about my son, Berg, he's like two and a half, and there's certain phrases he says all the time. And one of the phrases he says all the time is, good one. Like, if you do something he likes, he's like, good one, Dad. Like, I, you know, like Jenna made oatmeal this morning. Good one making oatmeal, Mom. Good one. And, and it's just, it's really cute. Um, but he said something when we were reading the Good, the good Friday story. Um, we've been reading through all these Jesus stories, and he knows Jesus, and like how he's depicted in this little children's book. And on Good Friday, I mean, it just destroyed me in a good way. He, he sees that the story of Good Friday just ends with the picture of Jesus on the cross. And my son, my two-and-a-half-year-old son, and I'm kind of getting emotional because sometimes when you read these things in children's literature, the simplified language just really makes plain how powerful the story of Jesus is. <laughs> and I'm kind of getting emotional, and I sort of pause for a second, and we're sitting in my son's room on this chair, and he looks at the book and goes, good one, Jesus, good one. <laughs> and I just got so happy for some reason. And, and I just remember thinking, how amazing is Easter? How amazing is is Good Friday and Easter and the fact that Christ has done this for us. And I don't know how much my son understands, if he even understands it, but in that moment, maybe he just said that for me. I don't know. But I was so encouraged, and then I got so excited to worship today because I know on Friday night that Sunday is coming. And even though our text in Acts chapter 8 may not seem like it's a very good Easter passage talking about Simon the sorcerer, I want to encourage us for a couple of things. One, that I believe all scripture points to Jesus, that all creation testifies to the resurrection and to Easter, and that even a passage about sorcery and, and trying to buy the gifts of the Spirit can actually really enlighten our spirits to the truth of Easter. And so I hope that is what you hear tonight as we talk about this. I've titled this message, The Scattered Gospel, because this is what happens. We, we begin our text in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, with um, Saul was happy they killed Stephen. Saul was happy they murdered Stephen, if you look back in Acts chapter 7, which is what it was. They murdered him. They got angry with him. They dragged him outside. They threw a bunch of rocks at him until he died. They murdered him. And Saul liked it. And in verse 1, 2, and 3, Luke gives us a very clear distinction. He says, holy and righteous men went out and buried, Saul, or buried Stephen and mourned for him. But Saul, and it says the word but... But Saul was the opposite. Saul approved of these things. And in fact, he was going around actively trying to destroy the church, dragging people out of their homes, putting them in prison. No doubt afraid they would be murdered as well. And then in verse 4 through 8, it tells us that the people began to scatter. With good reason, right? 
If our friends across the street in the Anglican church, a bunch of people broke in and dragged them out and threw rocks at them until they died in the street right in front of us here, we'd probably reconsider meeting the next week, right? We might just say, hey, you know, we're going to go back online, stay home, stay safe, right? Um, And so in this instance, the people decide to scatter, and it tells us the account of Philip who goes up to Samaria. Now, Samaria is north of, you know, Jerusalem in the northern part of Israel. And though they have similar backstories, the Samaritans have sort of changed their worship habits over the years, and they're a bit different than the Jews and the Hebrew people. And they didn't really get along all that well. But what's amazing about what the scriptures tell us when Philip went out there is what did he take with him? He took with him the gospel. He took with him Jesus. It actually says that Philip went and proclaimed the Messiah. Philip went, ran away from Jerusalem because he was afraid, we can only assume, and he goes and proclaims the Messiah to these people. And it says that he was preaching the word, and the people were healed. And in verse 8, that there was great joy, which, by the way, is a wonderful sign of the Holy Spirit doing things when people are filled with joy. And then in verse 9, 10, and 11, things get a little weird. tells us there was this guy named Simon who was practicing sorcery. But it also says that he was kind of claiming to do this in the power of God. He was claiming to do this in the name of God. He was like claiming to be a prophet in some ways. He was using whatever sorcery and magic was in the first century in, in what is modern-day northern Israel. It was impressing people. And I wish we had more of what this was, like what he was actually doing, because we don't really know, okay? Um, to, we're not really sure what exactly he was doing, right? Whether he was like a magician doing sleight of hand tricks, trying to trick people, or whether he was actually doing something with evil spirits and evil realms of the world, we're not really sure. Um, my guess would be that it was more of the latter, um, that he was experimenting or doing some things with, with, within the spirit world that did not please God. Um, and sometimes these things make us feel uncomfortable, but let me remind you that these things actually exist and are quite prevalent in the Bible, right? Uh, remember when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has all these guys who can do the same thing. He's like, hey, look, stick, snake. And then Pharaoh's people are like, yeah, we can do that too. You know? So these things exist. Actually, uh, King Saul, first king of Israel, actually goes and sees a witch, and she raises Samuel from the dead and talks to him. Right? So these things actually exist in the Bible. We don't know exactly what Simon was doing, but let me just remind us, too, as we look at this, that there is actually evil in this world. There are spirits and and evil beings and and things of this world that are real. And in this text, it tells, excuse me, in this text, it tells us that this was sorcery of some kind, but it was not from God. And just to be clear about this, if you want to read more about this, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, which explains in the Old Testament um, that this was also a very real thing. It says in Deuteronomy 18, when God is commanding the people when they go into Canaan, he says, when you enter the land your Lord, Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, which is what um, Canaanite worship was centered around. Was they would sometimes sacrifice children. Or who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, or engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritualist who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, because of the same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. So that's Deuteronomy 18, if you want to look that up later. Um, But what we do know, and what I just want to leave at at that for now, is that we don't know what he was doing, but we can be fairly certain it did not please God, 
And we can be also very certain that it was not in the name of God. Even though he claimed in the people of Samaria thought he was a prophet, thought he was this great man, um, I think, and I'm pretty confident in saying that these things were not from God, whatever he was doing, okay? And then in verse 12 and 13, it tells us that when Philip came with the truth, baptizing and saving people were saved, and this Simon guy, he believed. It tells us that Simon actually believed in the things he was saying, and that he began following Philip, right? He fo actually followed him around. It was like, wow, this guy's amazing. This guy's doing amazing things. But then in verse 14, 15, 16, 17, it actually says something that, I don't know if you noticed the first reading. It says that the people had not yet received the Holy Spirit, which is sort of an odd thing, because in our mind, and one of the things I've even taught from up here, is that once we believe, once we trust in Jesus with our life, then we receive the Holy Spirit. And it's an interesting detail, because some of you may have even heard or come from a tradition, or you're part of a tradition now, where there are some Christian traditions that believe unless you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and perform miracles of one kind or another, speaking in tongues or something else, that you're not actually saved. And they use this text as an example, right? They would say, see, see, the people in Samaria, they believed in Jesus and were baptized, but they didn't actually have the Holy Spirit yet, and so you need to do these things to, act, to really be saved. Um, I've actually heard this from people. Uh, my wife has heard this from people. And people sometimes will use this in a, as an example. A couple of things I want to point out about this little section, just for your, all your information. One, um, and I'm not saying that anyone who comes from that tradition, by the way, is wrong, uh, or that it is wrong, but it's a difficult thing to say that we must be baptized in the Holy Spirit, because when I read this passage, Peter and John show up, but they did not baptize them again. It doesn't say they did any other special thing. It says they prayed for them. It says that they prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit. They were already baptized. They didn't need to baptize them again. They had believed in Jesus. They were baptized. And so Peter and John, when they showed up, they laid hands on them and prayed for them and said, God, would you reveal your Holy Spirit to them? Would you give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Remember, as, as I've said multiple times in recent weeks, the Holy Spirit is an experiential teacher, right? Like, it's not something we can define. It's not something that we can like check off a list and say, okay, now I have the Holy Spirit because this or this is how the Holy Spirit always works. It's different for each and every one of us. And it's an experience that we can't always even use, put into words. And so what I would encourage each one of you to do, if you think about this and you say, whoa, do I have the Holy Spirit? Do I see the Holy Spirit working? Do I feel the Holy Spirit inside of me? You know what I would say? I would say pray to experience the Spirit of God. I would say gather together with other Christians a Peter and a John, and have them pray for you that you would feel and experience the Holy Spirit. Pray to see miracles in your everyday life. Pray that you would feel this power of the Holy Spirit in whatever God calls you to do. I can personally give testimony to this that I was never a big like, hey, Holy Spirit, tongues, miracles. I was never big on that train. My faith has always been very cerebral and left-brained. But when I began to pray for the Holy Spirit with friends and with mentors that I would experience these things, God made it real in my life. And I know people in this room who would say the same thing. And so when we look at this, don't be weirded out. Or don't allow a text like this to give you any pause or any doubt that, am I really saved? Like, did I miss something? I don't, I don't know. Pray. Let's follow Peter and John's example. And if we wonder, let's gather together and pray for one another that we would know these things to be true. Because we don't really want to be like Simon, do we? 
Simon obviously missed something. Verse 18 and 19 tells us that he went to Peter and John and said, hey, you guys are great. Here's some money. Let me get a piece of that, right? Like, I don't know what you guys are doing. I don't know, but, but here's some money. Give me that. And, and then Peter rebukes him, and, and, and that's that. But at first our thought is, how could Simon do this, right? And I was reading this over and over this week, and I honestly thought, I started to feel really bad for Simon. I felt bad for him, not because he missed something along the way. Maybe he zoned out when they were teaching about the Holy Spirit. I don't know. But I actually began to understand where Simon was coming from and his impulse to buy the Holy Spirit's gifts. Because this was the paradigm with which he lived. This was how he lived his life. He no doubt had gotten this gift of sorcery or magic or whatever he was doing before through you know, purchasing it or following someone and then purchasing it, whatever. And so in his mind, I really believe he was sort of thinking, hey, how can I get this? Maybe I can give these guys some money because that's the world he lived in, right? And in some ways, we actually all do this to some degree. We meet Jesus, we fall in love with Jesus, we want to grow in Jesus, but we apply Jesus to our understanding and our life, right? This is how it works in my office, and so this is what I'm going to have Jesus try to fit into. This is how it works in my home. I'm the boss and I get to do these things. And so Jesus, you can come into my life so long as I'm still the boss and I get to do these things. Right? We, we often think church should be like our home culture or our home life or things that make us comfortable. When we think about Jesus, we, we think Jesus is coming to save us and make us more comfortable. The church... When I read the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I think about Easter, when I think about the power of the resurrection and why we're gathered here today, I realize that Jesus never said, not a single time, that he came to fit into our plans and desires. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't fit in our boxes. Like, try as we might, right? I actually heard a pastor talking about this. She was asked um, by a seminary student in an interview what she does to get closer to God. And she said before she even realized she was saying it out loud, she started blathering on about, oh gosh, that's dangerous. Because when we get closer to God, our life turns upside down. When we get closer to God, we realize, oh my gosh, there's so much in me that needs to be changed. There's so much in me that needs Christ's restoration and Christ's resurrection. There's so much in me that I'm trying to apply Jesus to fit into my life. But Jesus doesn't do that. See, the resurrection didn't happen to make us comfortable. The resurrection didn't, didn't happen to affirm the habits we prefer. The resurrection of Jesus brought an upside-down kingdom that Corinthians tells us the world thinks is foolish. That when the world looks at us, they think we are fools. But Jesus says he came to bring a kingdom that will change all of our lives and change them to abundant lives. And so Peter's answer to Simon is right, but it doesn't mean we're not Simon. Peter's answer to Simon is, hey, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to realize that the way you're looking at Jesus right now is wrong. Okay, you, you need to realize that, that you're trying to fit Jesus into your kingdom instead of joining the kingdom of God. And so church, I, I just want you to think about this for a second here. When we think about Easter, we think about the cross of Christ, we think about resurrection, we think about being forgiven all our sins and iniquities. Are we taking that gift and then saying, great, how can I fit this into what I want to do? 
How can I fit this into my desires for life? Or are we saying, wow, that's amazing. How can I join in with that kingdom? And one of the reasons I really understand Simon a little bit here is his response. He says, pray for me. I I honestly think Simon was just so turned upside down. He had no idea how to even think about this Jesus guy. How could could I even understand this? How could I do this? I I, I offered you money because I thought that's the best way to do this. I, I don't understand how Jesus would give us these things freely. Please pray for me. He had a whole understanding of the world, but Jesus didn't fit in that understanding. His tricks couldn't hold up to the Holy Spirit, and he wanted the Spirit, but he needed to change his heart. He needed to change how he saw the world. He needed to, quite literally, as Jesus says to Nicodemus, die and be born again. And that, one of the hard things about this text is that's Simon's story. That's how it ends. We don't know what happened. And if you Google Simon and try to figure out more stuff about him, it drives me crazy. You can can look this passage up, and all of these commentaries talk about, was Simon really saved? Did Simon really repent? Was he good? Was he bad? Is he in hell? Is he in heaven? Like, who cares? I don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us, so why are you worried about it? You know, when I look at this text, I think there's so many other lessons we can learn. When we think of Jesus and Easter and the resurrection, so many Christians sit here and think, well, we need to know who's in and who's out right? It's Easter, so we should know who's on Team Jesus and who's not on Team Jesus. (laughs) I I, I can't really wrap my head around that way of thinking. Because you know what that does? It's the exact same thing Simon was doing. It's, It's this human nature thing to try and control the resurrection. We want to control Jesus. We want to control Easter. We want to control the resurrection, fit it into our life, and know who's in and who's out. Who's on our team? Team Jesus, and who's not? And I understand the impulse, but ultimately, when I look at Easter, church, we cannot control this thing. We cannot control the salvation of the Lord. And that's what we see from Acts chapter 8 onward. These disciples, these followers of Jesus, start scattering out into the ancient world, and crazy things happen. The very next story of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, you should read it this week. Like, There's a guy going down the road, gets saved, and then goes back to Ethiopia, and that's the start of the Ethiopian church, which is one of the oldest churches in the world. Like, they didn't plan for that to happen. They didn't know that was going to happen, but the Holy Spirit spoke to them, and these are the results. And so there are three things I just want to point out as we wrap up here. There are three things that I noticed in this passage for us for Easter tonight. The first one is that Easter is for everyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most relevant thing that's ever happened in human history, okay? The second thing, and I'll go back over these in a second, the second thing is that the gospel has the power to go anywhere. The gospel has the power to go anywhere, and that you and I, if we claim the name of Jesus Christ, we take it with us wherever we go. And the third thing is that we cannot control the story of Easter. We cannot control the gospel of Jesus Christ to our own ends and goals. So the first one. Let me just review these real quick. What we see in this story. Easter is for everyone. You know, one of the hardest things for Christians, like I said, is we, a lot of times we want to know who's in and who's out, who's on team Jesus and who's not. If we really believe the things Jesus said, we're not going to worry about that. 
Because what did Jesus say? The last shall be first. The first shall be last. That he came to save the worst among us. Andy talked about that this morning. That Jesus spent a whole lot of time hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, and, and prostitutes. Like, he spent a whole lot of time with people we would probably give two to three minutes on the street and then say, I don't have time. Easter is for everyone. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to know and understand that Easter was for the worst of the worst. Like Simon, someone who practiced sorcery, someone who tried to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we think is detestable. We need to remember at Easter, every single, not just at Easter, but every single day, that the gospel is for Simon. The gospel is for the worst of the worst, the people we look down our nose at and think, how could you insert whatever? We need to remember that Easter is for everyone. It's the most relevant thing in human history because it relates to the worst people of human history. The second thing, the gospel has the power to go anywhere. In our story, it starts just by going north to Samaria. But but remember, the Samaritans and Hebrews were not super friendly, but this is just the beginning. Because if you keep reading in Acts, as we will, you just see it spreads apart almost like a pandemic around the world, which is a horrible analogy, I apologize. But it spreads to the end of the earth and you can't get away from it. But for you and me, as Christians, what we need to understand is that we take the gospel with us wherever we go. Even though you may not feel like Philip and you don't go preaching Jesus wherever you go, You are called in the name of Jesus Christ to take the gospel, to take the Easter story with you wherever you go. You cannot go on a business trip and not be a Christian for two days. You can't. You cannot go on vacation and decide not to be a Christian for a week or two. Say, I'm just going to take a week off. I'm just not going to do this. It's not what we do. We take it with us wherever we go. We proclaim the Easter story and the resurrection wherever we find ourselves. Because people, going back to the first point, like Simon, need to hear it. And they need us. And lastly, we cannot control the gospel to our own ends. And I want to finish with this. One of the things I realized this week, as much as I wanted to do an in-person communion for the Last Supper, Monday, Thursday, I, I... I put up with it last year, but this year it legitimately kind of affected my, my psyche a little bit. And then sitting there with my son is like, I can't control the risen Lord. <laughs> my son thinks church is sitting at the iPad <laughs> and eating his dinner. Some of you guys see him every week. Hey, Berg. Like, that, that bugs me a little. But I can't control that. That's just one example of a million things I try to control, by the way. I can't stop this gospel. All of creation, and I wrote this in that little devotional I shared with the church this week, all of creation is telling the story of Easter. We see it in spring, we see it every sunrise, we see it all over the place. And all people need to hear this story. This story of Simon, he was just simply trying to fit Jesus into his life. He didn't know that he couldn't manipulate this Jesus We need to know, we need to read his example and see his example and realize that Jesus does not fit into our normal life as we want him to. Jesus Jesus brings an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that is not going to fit perfectly, and in fact, it's probably going to turn your life upside down. 
Because if we really want to worship God for Easter, if we really want to praise God for resurrecting from the dead and giving us new life, we need to understand that Easter turns our life upside down, that Easter changes how we see everything, that Easter leads us to repentance, to communal prayer, to ask for help, that Easter sets us free from all the things that have kept us from God for so long. And when we think about Easter that way, it's pretty easy to want to praise God. It's pretty easy to be thankful. Even though it doesn't fit, even though it's difficult sometimes. And like I said today, I was just thinking about this day and everything it means and represents. And I just have a big smile on my face because like I said, I think of my son and I just think, you know what? Good one, Jesus. It's a good one. Would you pray with me? God, thanks. Lord, I, I feel like Simon sometimes. Lord, I repent of trying to fit you into my plans. Lord, may we take the Easter gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and realize that it is for everyone. That it is for us, that it is for our enemy, that it is for the worst of the worst. Lord, may we have the power and the courage to take this gospel with us wherever we go. And may we not try to fit you into our plans, God, but join with you in the kingdom of heaven and bringing it to this earth. Lord, thanks for this. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for giving us new life in Easter. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond with the song. I want to invite our musicians up.